Today we are continuing our study in the book of Revelation, and we are in chapter 3. And before we get to Jesus talking about the judgment that's going to take place to this, on this world in chapter 6 through 18, which has a lot of the things that we look at as being difficult to understand, he judges the church first of all. He makes sure he speaks to his church before he judges the world. And this is only right. Peter said in 1 Peter 4, 17, for the time has come for judgment to begin in the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? It's just right if he's going to judge the world that he takes a look at his church first of all. And if we need to make corrections that we would listen to them. Now, these were seven letters written to seven literal churches that had the problems that he's talking about. But we can also find each one of us in these churches. And we can look in church history and find times in church history that were distinct to each one of these letters that were written. So there's some very important things for us to apply to our lives. Now, the church of Sardis is known as the dead church. They have a name that they are alive, but they are dead. And I think a, a lot of explanations for what the dead church is can't be what the church of Sardis is because they'll talk about churches that are obviously dead. Churches that were alive in Scotland, how many years ago, you know, 1600 or, or in the 1600s, and there's 20 people that attend the church today. It seats 2000. And there's 20 people that attend the church today. And you could say that church is, is dead, but it doesn't have a name that it's alive. This church has a name that it's alive and yet it is dead which makes this letter even more important to us because we don't want to have a name that we're alive, but not really be genuine Christians. Now listen to what Timothy says about what Paul says to Timothy about the church in the last days. And I'm going to read a section to you here that is normally applied to the world, but listen to what it says at the very end of this section. This is 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. By the way, did I get my scriptures? Nope. Okay. So I'm going to slow down a little bit, give you time to look up the references. Second Timothy 3, 1 through 5. It says this about the last days. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness and denying the power. So that whole list there, we generally look at, well, that's the world and we can apply it to the world today. But at the very end there, he throws in that form of godliness that denies the power and makes you realize that he's talking about the church as well. He says of these people, from such people, turn away. Re get away from people that are like this. All right, so let's take a look at the letter to the church of Sardis. Revelation 3, we'll start in verse 1. And to the angel of the church of Sardis write, each of these letters are addressed to the angel, which would be a representative, either an actual angel or the pastors of the church, but it would be a representative of that church. 
uh, and uh, to the church, and the church is the word, and we talked about this, uh, is the, the word ekklesia, which means a gathering that has authority, like a, like a council would meet together, like a city council would meet together and have authority to make decisions. You and I have been given authority here on earth. We're not just a gathering of believers, but we are here for the work of Christ and we've been given authority to do that work that God has given us to do. And the city of Sardis, let's take some time uh, to break down that city. If you were to look on a map, starting with Ephesus, and you go in a, a clockwise manner, and you go all the way around till you get to Laodicea, which is the last of the churches that are mentioned. You can make, you can, it, it makes a basic circle. It's flat on the bottom, but it makes a dome kind of a shape where they're just in a circle and that's the way that they are, are represented. The churches that are here are in an area that had been conquered and reconquered and, and Turkey itself was an area that was, had civilization as long as 4,000 years ago, 42, 4,300 years ago. And the city of Sardis has a history that is that long. Over 4,000 years ago, there was a city in the area of Sardis. It is one of the oldest cities on the planet. The ancient Greek writers mentioned it often. So there are a lot of ancient Greek writers that wrote and talked about the city of Sardis. One of the reasons is that there is this mythical king that is said to have been from Sardis that may be based in some reality. So it may be a king, and then he became mythical, and this is King Midas. And he doesn't sell mufflers, all right? So King Midas had the Midas touch, right? So everything he touched turned to gold. And of course, this became a problem for him, right? Because you can't eat gold, and you don't want your family members being gold. And so he went down to the Pacalus, I think is the name of the river that is down below where Sardis is at, and he washed himself to be purified of that curse, which was thought to be a blessing. And of course, there's a lot of lessons in that, right? That you can see in this mythological story that money isn't always what we think it's gonna be. It's not gonna solve the problems. But he washes himself and the, the gold was to, uh, the, the, the Pacless River then became a river of gold. And it's interesting that there was a lot of gold around the city of Sardis. In fact, they were one of the first cities to ever mint gold and silver coins. It wasn't long before the, the 600 BC that they started minting coins. And so money, or at least silver and gold, had its start in the area of Sardis. It's also in the crossroads of, of Turkey there. And that's what made this city so important. Now it was the capital of the Lydian kingdom in 556 to 546, it was governed by, by a king by the name of Krosos. Hope I'm saying his name right. So some people say as rich as Krosos, and that's a term uh, that, because he was so rich, because the, the region was so wealthy with gold and silver. He had also built his, his, the city and his palace high up on the outcropping. And the walls were on a sheer edges, almost almost all the way around, leaving one way to be defended alone. And it was considered to be totally and completely defendable with just a small group of people. Krosos was a, was a literal person 
and he battled Cyrus and lost the battle, but he retreated to his, his, his city, his fortress city, which is only a portion of the city, but people retreated into that. When they came to siege the city to catch him, they didn't know how they were going to get into the city because there's no way to do it. But the foundations had begun to crumble. It's kind of a clay ground. Maybe there had been some earthquakes in the region and there were, there were small areas of where, they, where there was access into the city. And the story goes that one soldier defending the city was looking over the edge and his helmet fell off and that somebody was watching, one of the Persian soldiers was watching him and he watched him come down, pick up his helmet and then go back through the wall and make his way in. And so they made a distraction on the other side of the city and they sent their elite forces in to the city and they took the city that way, which becomes an example of someone being overconfident. This didn't happen to them just once. It happened to them twice. They thought they were completely safe. They thought they could not be taken. There was no way that they could be taken and they were taken. So um, uh, the city of Sardis, uh, becomes that example of something that is overconfident. Now, we get the description. Every letter has a description in it, and the description always has something to do with the letter. So it says, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So the seven stars are the messengers, either angels or the pastors, that God has them in his hands. They're doing what God wants them to do. And the seven spirits. We saw the seven spirits in the vision all of these descriptions come from the vision in chapter one. So we saw these seven spirits there and that they really represent the Holy Spirit. We'll see them a, a couple more times in the book of Revelation. Jesus always has the seven spirits. And I think it's in chapter five. They are his eyes. And so it's, it's the completeness of the Holy Spirit. The number seven being complete. It's the completeness of the Holy Spirit in Zechariah Four, six, there is a vision of these two candelabras that have an oiling system that oils them continually. And it's a picture of the Holy Spirit. It says in Zechariah uh, 4, 6, so he answered and said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by power, but nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord, or not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So that's kind of the picture of the seven spirits. They are there by the power and by might. Now, if God has the Holy Spirit and you are dead, you don't have the Holy Spirit. So that's the connection to this description of Christ. So if a church has a name that it's alive, but it is dead, it's not going to have the Holy Spirit in it. Now, generally it's believed that these are seven aspects of the Holy Spirit from Isaiah 11:2, the spirit of the Lord rests upon him, talking about Christ, the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, of might, the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of the fear of the Lord. So there's seven aspects of the Holy Spirit that are brought up, basically generally thought to be that of the Holy Spirit. So then he says, I know your works, which of course he says in, in every letter, He's going to say it in the next two letters as well because God sees everything we're doing and he judges everything that we do. He knows our works and he's doing that with, with eyes that have a flame of fire. He sees clearly everything and he's able to judge everything clearly where we can't do that. We see somebody do something and we may judge, but we're, we're getting things wrong for sure. 
we are not always judging rightly. And that's for sure. Now you might say, not me, I get it all right. But you don't, only Jesus does. And then he says, you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. I think it's pretty easy to identify churches that are dead. They are, maybe they've been around for a long time. Maybe the numbers have dwindled down. Uh, maybe they have doctrines that are not true biblical doctrines and they're dead because of that. Maybe there's a lot of life in the church, but because we can identify that they don't teach the doctrines of salvation, we know that we come to Christ by faith, that it's not of any works. We know the just shall live by faith. And this is the main theme as you go through the epistles that the just live by faith. And we know that if a church starts to teach that you can be saved by some kind of works, that they're not really doing the work or the call that God has called them to do, doesn't mean any of that all of them are unsaved, but it certainly doesn't mean that they are alive and a healthy church. This particular church looks like it's alive, but it isn't. Now, in the time that this was written in 95, uh, Sardis was still a very wealthy church. We do know that Christians and Jews were treated somewhat good comparatively to the other areas, that there doesn't seem to be the same level of persecution. Of course, we don't know. We only get, you only get small snapshots through historical writings or through archeology. span so we don't know everything that happened there. But it seems like the Jews in the area had a uh, get along, um, kind of a uh, get along with everybody, don't stir the water. Um, they had their synagogue right next to the gymnasium. The, the Jewish synagogue in the city was found right next to the gymnasium. That would generally be a problem. There would be a lot of Jews that would find a problem with that because the gymnasium was a place where they competed in the nude because they, they lifted up and, and worshiped the human body. And so Jews had a whole different outlook. And so they kind of put those things together that perhaps the Christians were doing the same thing in the area. And they had compromised so much that they didn't really have a relationship with the Lord. Maybe, who knows exactly. There is definitely some mystery when it comes to this. And maybe... There's meant to be mystery in these churches so that it can be applied to a broader group of people so that each one of us can go, is there corruption for the corrupt church? Is there corruption in my life? For the compromised church, is there compromise in our life? For the church that's dead, is it possible that I think that I'm alive and that I have a look like I'm alive, but I'm not? You want to know if you really have a relationship with Christ. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, 9 through 10, it speaks of those who desire to be rich that fall into a temptation and a snare. We're going to see that the church of Laodicea has a problem with wealth as well. And if, if the, the city is wealthy and the Christians just didn't struggle because of the, the wealth that they had, they didn't struggle as much as others, maybe that allowed them to compromise with the world a little bit and it brought them into a snare. It goes on to say, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drowned men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, from which some have strayed from their faith in greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. 
Um, I'm just thinking if the church was wealthy, that the city was wealthy and the church didn't have to make a separation like they did in some other places and couldn't be involved in the wealth like in Pergamum, they were separated from them. Maybe that was one of the reasons that they had this problem. So that's God's diagnosis. God's diagnosis is, I know your works. You have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. We also know that Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And also that some are going to say, didn't we do miracles in your name? And didn't we cast out demons in your name? And he's going to say, away from me, I never knew you. When you by faith receive Christ, you enter into a relationship with him. You are now known by God, the Bible says. You know him, you're in a relationship with him. And you might think you know him, but if you don't really know him, you're going to be sent away. And this is why it's good for us to evaluate. And one of the signs that we're given in the book of John that we have genuine faith is that we want to do what God wants us to do. That's why I say to people regularly, if you say I'm a Christian, but I don't want to do what God wants me to do, then there's a problem. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to say you're not a Christian because I don't know your heart. But if you're a genuine Christian, then you want to do what God wants you to do. And there's a struggle and you get heartbroken over the struggle. And the real drag about that is for us is we're going to have that until the day we go to be with Jesus or he comes back to us. There will be that day when we will be glorified and we will no longer have the struggle. But you can definitely win in this struggle. And by winning, you're getting the upper hand with it. Jesus said, pray, lest you enter into temptation. Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. So that you can pray about the struggle that you have. When you fail, when you sow seeds to the flesh, from the flesh you reap corruption. So you've got to look at the seeds that you're sowing. There's things that you can do to lighten that load up. But you definitely want to do what God wants you to do. And you're definitely going to need Romans 8.1. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're definitely going to need to walk in God's grace without abusing the grace. You, if you're practicing sin, there's a problem. If you're struggling with sin, that's welcome to the Christian life. Welcome to what all of us have to deal with because no temptation has overtaken you, the Bible says. That is not common to man, but God provides a way of escape. So you look for the way of escape. And I can tell you from a matter of use that when I am tempted and I look for the way of escape, that I can find that way of escape. It doesn't mean I don't fail, I don't blow it, but it does mean that I've seen it. I've actually experienced it where the, the temptation is there and the way of escape is available. So what's the treatment then? If they're dead and they look alive, what's the treatment? That's in, well, down here a little bit further. Be watchful, he says, and strengthen the things which remain. Be watchful. Well, watch for, for what? Well, there's several things the Bible tells us to watch for. In 1 Corinthians 16, 13, it says, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave and be strong. So just as you're walking with Christ and standing firm, you're looking around, seeing what's going on in your Christian walk. In Luke 21, 36, Jesus said, watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and stand before the Son of Man. So we are to consider the world around us, and in a balanced way, consider whether or not we're living in the last days. 
know the signs of the times. Once you get to date setting, once people start saying, absolutely, he's going to come back on this date. Once you get to this is a, you know, the Shemitah year and the four triad moons, those become a bit problematic. I'm not saying that they're going to miss it completely. I'm just saying that they start setting dates and, and putting certain fulfillments of prophecy down and no one knows the day or the hour. For all we know, Jesus could come back tonight. For all we know, he could come back in 100 years. And we say, well, we can't imagine that, but we are supposed to be watching and praying that we'd be counting worthy to escape those things. We're to be watching for temptation. I already talked about that. Jesus told Peter that in the garden of Gethsemane. In Matthew 26, 40 and 41, well, that's the passage. In Acts 20, 29 and 31, we're told to watch for false teachers. We know that they're going to be false teachers. And in our day, you don't have to look very far. You know, listen to the radio much, turn on TV. You're going to run into false teachers pretty soon. So you got to watch for them because you know they're out there. In Acts 20, 29 through 31, Paul spoke to the elders of the church in Ephesus that he had meet them on the shore and he said this, this to them. I know this, he said, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So those from outside are going to look in to the true body of Christ and go, I could take some of these people out. And also from among yourselves, men will rise up. So within the church, there were going to be men who were going to rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. Therefore, he says, watch and remember the three, the three years that I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Jesus warned us as well. Take heed that you are not deceived. So you want to watch these kind of things. How does that relate to them watching that because they are, well, well, listen to what he goes on to say. He says, be, be watchful and strengthen the things that remain. So they're really not dead. They're mostly dead. There's a part of them that is still alive that they can strengthen. Or there's those who are there in the church that have a genuine relationship with him. And so his treatment is first be watchful and second, strengthen the things that remain. Now, he has no commendation for them for the church of Sardis. Other churches have told him, I have this, you do these things and you don't do these. He's only got a condemnation for them. And that is that they're dead. He says, strengthen the, the things which remain that are ready to die. So there are some there that still have a relationship with Christ who need to strengthen those things. He says, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember therefore how you received and heard and hold fast and repent. And when he says, remember, we're reminded of the church of Ephesus that had left their first love. And he said, remember where you have fallen from. And here he says, remember how you've received, how you received the word of God and heard it and hold fast and repent. Now, if you are, if you're wondering whether or not your relationship is genuine with God, you go back to the basics of making that commitment to him. You come back, if, if you're saying, look, I've evaluated myself and I'm not sure I've made a real commitment to Christ. I never like to quickly dismiss the person that says to me, I'm not sure if I'm a Christian. R right away, 
what I want to do is go, oh, yes, you are. Cut it out. I want to reassure them. But I never want to dismiss that too quickly. I want to ask, why? Why do you think that? And, and start to get some ideas. And if you think that possibly you're not genuinely a Christian, go in and talk with a pastor. Find someone who's mature that you know and sit down and talk with them. Chances are they're going to be able to identify that you are a genuine Christian and you can't go by your feelings and they're going to be able to help you out with what a lot of Christians struggle with. But there are those who are not. And that's why the Bible says, examine yourself and make sure you're in the faith. How do you do that? You go back to doing the first things. How you have received. You go back to say, I want to receive you. How you heard the gospel that you would stand fast in. And then you hold fast and you repent. You change the way that you're living. If there are things in your life that you might be identifying that you really don't have a relationship with Christ. So then he ends with the warning. The warning is, uh, he tells us to be watchful. And then with the warning, therefore, if you will not watch. So his, his diagnosis is you're dead and the, the people think you're alive. Then there's a treatment for that which remains. And now the diagnose, the, the, um, the warning, therefore, if you do not watch. Now, w warnings are interesting because we believe that there's great confidence that we have a relationship with Christ. But the Bible has warnings. And I've, I've shared with you that I have this own struggle in my own life. Do I believe once saved, always saved? Or, or is it possible that someone could, I don't think you can lose your salvation. You can't be like, oh, where'd it go? I had it yesterday. Where's the last place I had it? I gotta go get it. I, I, but I think you could, it's possible and very rare that you could leave your salvation because of the warnings that are in scripture. And notice the way I word that. It's possible and very rare so you can get my sense of, I, I, I can't quite land on this thing. Now this is after 37 years of preaching the word of God and feeling very confident one way and feeling very confident the other way and finding myself reading one passage that makes me go, oh yeah, for sure. And another passage that makes me go, I don't know. And I can tell you that here recently, we just finished the book of Galatians. And I can tell you that there were three or four statements that Paul made in Galatians that made me go, sure sounds like these guys are in danger of walking away from Christ, genuinely walking away from him. And so I'm sorry to do that to you with an I don't know, but there's tension with the scripture there. And maybe there's supposed to be. Maybe when we're honestly looking, what does the Bible say? What can we really learn from it? There's supposed to be tension there. For whatever reason, God has tension within the word of God where we have confidence that we have a relationship with him and that we know we're walking with him. And yet there's warnings. And here's the warning to those who are not going to watch. He says, I will come upon you like a thief. Now that has overtones of the end of the age. Jesus said it, that I'm going to come upon you like a thief. You be ready because you don't know when I'm going to come. I'll come like a thief. We're told by Paul in Paul's writings that Jesus is not going to come on us like a thief. Not because he's not coming at a time we don't know, but because we're going to be ready. 
Like if you know a night a thief is going to break in, but you don't know what time he's going to break in, so you stay up all night with your shotgun to watch the door, he doesn't overtake you like a thief because you, you are ready for him. The idea is we live ready so he doesn't come like a thief. So the person who isn't watchful, that doesn't strengthen the things that remain, and you can't just say he's giving this instruction to those who are already dead because he's not talking to the ones who are already dead. He's talking to the ones that need to strengthen the things that remain. So he says to them, I will come upon you like a thief. That's a warning. And it's a warning of judgment. Every time in the New Testament that that term is used, you know, I'm going to come like a thief. I'm coming upon you like a thief. In Matthew and the epistles, it's, it's talking about Jesus coming in judgment. And maybe this means that there's a good portion of Sardis still around when Jesus returns, that he does when his return to judge this world, that there's a, there's a lot of the church that's dead. Maybe it's part of the church today that is denying the resurrection, denying miracles, denying the power of God, but they themselves think that they're alive and doing the work that God's called them to do. So I'm gonna come on you like a thief and, I, and you will not know what hour I have come upon you. Again, that has overtones of the return of Christ, both of what Paul writes and what Jesus writes about. So then he writes to the overcomers. So there are gonna be those even in the dead church who overcome. I don't know how many, but there are gonna be those that find themselves really in a relationship with Christ. We've seen that in every one of the churches. It will continue on that there are overcomers in, in every church. And that's why when you get critical about a church, you realize there are still those in that church that are saved. You, you want to be careful that you don't become so critical that you, you know, write off everybody in a, in a certain area or think that God can't do a work even among them, even when there's genuine problems. Because being dead is a genuine problem, right? A church that is dead, but has a name that they're alive, it's a genuine problem, but there's still there's those who overcome. So he says, you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garment. So there were, were some there that had a genuine relationship with Christ. And they shall walk with me in white. In the Old Testament, Satan is standing against the high priest Joshua. This is a different Joshua than brought them into the land. And, G, and, and the angel of the Lord is there, it's Jesus. It says, remove his dirty clothes and put clean clothes on him. We are, we're, we're, we're no longer going to be sinful in heaven. Our robes will be white and clean and we'll walk with him in white. What a picture. It says, for they are worthy. There, there is something that we can be worthy of. This doesn't mean we earn our own salvation. It doesn't mean that we don't have the sin nature like everybody else has but there is some concept of worthy when you are walking with Christ and following him and maybe it's responding to him. It's, it's you responding to what he's done, but he gives a, an aspect of worthiness here for, for you, they are worthy. He who overcomes, here we go, shall be clothed with a white garment. There it is again, you're gonna walk with him as white. You're gonna be clothed with a white garment. And now here comes this very problematic statement and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. So in several places in Revelation, 
The book of life is brought up. In other places in the Bible, the book of life is brought up. And so the name won't be blotted out from the book of life. So how do you handle that if you believe that once you're saved, you're always saved? Or like some read this, that the book of life had the people's names written in it before the foundations of the world and that the name could be blotted out. Well, some say that everyone's name is written in the book of life, that it's a book of life. And so everybody that has life is written in the book. And that, I think that's a possibility. And then when you don't commit your life to Christ, when you get to a certain point, your name is removed from the book of life and that's connected to the second death, right? The, the, the second resurrection is called the second death. So these people are no longer alive, but they are dead forever. And so it could be that connection. And he says, I will not blot your name out from the book of life. Maybe. M maybe the idea would be that your name is written there when you get saved and then blotted out later on. And that causes problems. But again, maybe it's very difficult. Maybe that is the what it is. And it's just very difficult. And there's that tension again. But this is not the only place you get that tension. And, and if you're solid on saying, I'm once saved, always saved, that's what it is. And, and I love the way that they'll, they'll say it is so confidently. The Bible teaches it and that's it. And, and it's like, but I know there's this tension that's in there. And you may believe that, you may have come to believe that, but I don't know that it can be as, as confident and as solid as you make it sound without really defending your position on, on, on some of these areas. But um, he says, I will not blot out the name from the book of life. So there's this book of life that's there and we want our name written in it and uh, we don't want our name blotted out. However, the book of life works and at some time we'll, we'll get it. Now, oftentimes people will say, well, just because he says he won't blot your name out, it's always, I will not. He never says, I'm gonna blot someone's name out. So the warnings are often responded to in this way by those who believe that there's no way you can lose your salvation. They'll say, the warning's there, but you can't happen. It can't really happen. And here's where I go with that. Then why a warning? If it can't happen, then why give a warning? If there's a warning on the road, sharp corner, it's probably there for a reason. Because cars took it too fast and found themselves halfway through the corner. Ah! And, and, and so I just have a hard time. As, when we studied Ephes, uh, uh, Hebrews, we talked about this a lot. A hard time with these warnings. There are six main warnings in, in Hebrews to, and to say, well, none of them were needed. They're there, but none of them were needed. They're there so that the non-believers will, those that end up separated from God forever will have had warnings. But he's warning people that have relationships with Christ. And so that's the problem. These are the ones that, that remain, that he's warning. And so that becomes a problem in just trying to write this warning off. I'm, I'm just letting you guys in my struggle in my own head right now. That's all I'm doing. I'm sharing with you guys what happens and goes on inside of my head when I come to these kind of passages. He goes on to say, and this is, this is wonderful. 
but I will confess his name before my father and his angels. We confess the name of Christ. I belong to Jesus. I follow him. I serve Jesus. I confess his name. And one day he will say, this is my servant, Robert, or, or whatever name he calls me by. This, he's going to confess me. I'm going to be confessed before the Father and the angels that I belong to Christ. That's just an amazing thought that just as I have confessed Christ, Christ will confess me. Now, there's another passage where he says, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. Well, I don't want that, but I like this. But I will confess your name before the Father and before his angels. What a great way to end this passage that has so much mystery in it. And I can tell you by reading so many different commentaries over the years that people take this particular letter, this one out of all of them, in, in different ways. And that just tells me that if you've got the experts and the commentators, and some taters are more common than others, but the commentators, sorry, dad joke time. Sorry, I should, I should give a dad joke warning. Um, that if they're having trouble landing on what it's about, if you're finding a lot of different opinions, then it's probably mysterious for a reason. There's mystery in it. It's just mystery. God just wants there to be some mystery. There, there is a lot of mystery in the Word of God, which is good. It keeps us interested, keeps us guessing, keeps us looking. It, 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 God doesn't want us to understand everything right now. There are things that are just mystery. And this is one of them, which it causes us to search. And finally, he ends the letter like he ends every other letter. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What I think as I end this letter, as I was studying this for this, for this today, I think of the actual church that was in Sardis, which was just down the road from Thyatira, just down the road from Pergam, just down the road from Philadelphia a genuine church that had such a problem that they didn't really have faith, whatever that was. Whether it was a compromise, whether it was an outright denial, who knows exactly what it was, but what a sad thing for that church to be declaring Jesus when they weren't really following him. And what a sad thing that would be today for a church to really think I'm really following God when in fact you're not. Now, three things in closing like I like to do. Number one has to do with wealth. Wealth can, can be a hindrance to our life of Christ. And for us, where we live, most of us have been given an abundance by Christ. I find myself when I pray for the food that God, and thanking God for the food that he's given me to thank him for the incredible abundance that he's given to me, to us in general, right? God's given us so much. But having so much can cause us to trust in that and not to trust in God. Seeing the weaknesses in that so that we have to trust in him. There's so much wealth in the, the city of Sardis. It seems to me that has to be part of the problem. But, but maybe not because <laughs> there's mystery. Uh, and then the second, be watchful because we're told to do that and strengthen the things that remain. So, so watch, are you aware? Where are you with Christ? Is there something obvious going on that needs to change? 
watch and strengthen. Finally, if you confess the name of Jesus, you live for him now, he'll confess your name. I don't know if he'll stand up and say, Robert Leroy Furrow. I don't know. My, 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 I was named after my two grandfathers. One of them was Leroy Furrow and the other one was Robert Forrest Golden. And I, I told my mom, I'm just going to steal Robert Forrest. In fact, I'll steal the whole thing. Robert Forrest Golden. I like, I'd be an author for sure. That's an author's name right there. But your name actually being confessed in front of the Father by Jesus on the lips of our Savior and in front of all the angels. What an amazing thing with all of our struggles that God would give us that kind of a promise. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you that we're able to take a look at this city and really dive in, see the history of this city that was the capital of Lydia that had a fortress city portion of the city was a fortress city. And yet they were overtaken by overconfidence. And maybe that's the key. Maybe these people were overconfident in themselves so they didn't trust in you. So they had a name that they were living, but they were dead. Like the city had a name that it couldn't be taken, but it was taken twice. And so Lord, we pray that you'd help us to evaluate our lives and make sure that we are not Sardis. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.